This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me as always, much like William H. Bonnie, a.k.a. Billy the Kid, my co-host promises he'll make you famous. He is the captain. Regulators! Mount up. It's good to be seen and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today we are drinking Jesse James Most Wanted by Aftershock Brewing Company Garage Grade 4 out of 5 bottle caps. This is a very smooth stout with an ABV of 12%. So if you're drinking this bad boy, make sure your horse knows its way home. Also, this is rare. It's a hard to find beer. So if you locate and try Jesse James Most Wanted and check it in on the untapped app, make sure you snap a picture because no one will believe you. And this hard-to-find bad boy was apprehended and brought to us by the following. You know, we had the captain deputize a few of our members of True Crime Garage Army. You have to have to keep parts unknown safe, right, Captain? That's what we got to do right there. First up, we have Deputy Luke from Primont, Australia. Next, we have Deputy Allison from Lower Bureau, Pennsylvania. And over the pond, we have Dina from London. We like your jib. We have a message here from a happy Tracy in Tustin, California. Tracy says... She sent a note referencing an older episode, Captain, where you said you were going to quit the show. Yeah. So happy, Still Tracy. Still working on it. She says you are not allowed to quit, Captain, because if you jump, she jumps. So All hopefully right. nobody's jumping off of anything. We're going to have a jumping party uh, off the bridge at Parts Unknown. And last but not least, we have Deputy Justin in Papillon, Nebraska. I looked that up. I wanted to make sure it was a real place because sometimes I think people are just sending in fake cities, making them up so... So I screw up and struggle to pronounce their names. We have fake captains and fake parts unknown with fake jibs. Well, thanks everybody for filling up the fridge for this week's show. If you want to buy us around for next week's show, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button. And if you'd like to get a special Team Nick shirt, they're available now on the merch page at truecrimegarage.com. All right, Captain, that's enough of the business. Everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. The FBI is seeking your help to apprehend the following individuals. Robert William Fisher allegedly killed his wife and two children and blew up their house in Scottsdale, Arizona in 2001. Eduardo Ravello charged with the murders of pregnant U.S. consulate employee 
her husband, and a friend in Mexico seven years ago. Yasser Saeed is wanted for allegedly murdering his two teenage daughters. The girls died of multiple gunshot wounds on January 1st, 2008. Walter Yavani Gomez is wanted for his alleged involvement in the brutal murder of a man in Plainfield, New Jersey in May of 2011. The victim was struck in the head numerous times. His throat was cut and he was stabbed 17 times in the back. Luis Macedo, a Latin Kings gang member, is wanted for his alleged involvement in the death of a 15-year-old boy in Chicago, Illinois. On May 1st, 2009, the victim was beaten, shot, and set on fire. Badrish Kumar Patel, the FBI is offering a $200,000 reward for the arrest of Badrish Kumar. He is wanted for allegedly killing his wife by striking her multiple times with an object while the two were working at a donut shop in Hanover, Maryland on April 12, 2015. For more information, visit fbi.gov wanted. These are just some of the most wanted men in America. And this is True Crime Garage. We wanted to do something a little different on this episode. We wanted to dive into the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. Yeah, we grew up being fans of the show's Unsolved Mysteries and mm-hmm. America's Most Wanted. And so kind of paying a little bit of a tribute to those two shows, you know, there there is this list, this living, breathing list that's provided to us by the FBI. Mm-hmm. And anybody at any time can go to their website and look at the photos of these wanted individuals, read about the stories. And it's something that I think that not a lot of us are paying attention to. And we got a lot of web sleuthers out there. We got this whole community of people looking for these terrible people that we talk about every week. Mm-hmm. But there's this list. There's this list of people that we should be hunting. Yeah, and I, it's a list that I haven't checked out in a while. But going back to the Unsolved Mysteries and America's Most Wanted, mm-hmm. if you could host, if you could revive one of those shows and you could be the host, which show would you pick? Well, it, see, here's the thing, Captain. Mm-hmm. I 100% without without fault, I, I immediately would pick Unsolved Mysteries. Oh, yeah. I good just, choice. I mean, Robert Stack's voice is so incredibly yeah, but good. Just because you're the host doesn't mean you get a sound like Robert Stack. Well, right, right. And But that's what scares me. It would be very big shoes to fill. <laughs> you know what I mean? He did such a good job with that. And he, he was like creepy enough that it, that it added to the creep factor of the show. Well, Colonel, I think you're... Uh, creepy enough to fill his creepy shoes well i i will take that as a compliment well it really wasn't a compliment but let's uh let's dive into the history and some of the cases that fascinate us on the fbi's most wanted list for over 60 years the fbi has sought the public's assistance in a very special way through one of their most effective longest running publicity programs the top most wanted fugitives list In 1949, a reporter, this is James Donovan, he asked the FBI to identify the toughest guys that they were investigating at the time. The FBI provided him with photos of 10 dangerous fugitives, which he then published on the front page of the Washington Daily News. The top 10 list was extremely popular at the time, and several of the fugitives were captured as a result. So during the following year, the FBI, they formalized its 10 Most Wanted Fugitives publicity program, which since 1950 has led to the location of hundreds of our nation's most dangerous criminals. They have, an, they have over a 90% success rate when they place somebody on the list of apprehending them. Which is a high percentage, but one of the criteria is they put these individuals that they think the public can help them capture. Yes, that's right. And we'll go through the criteria of how someone ends up on the list, according to the FBI. But uh, from the director, you know, the director states that the FBI's top 10 program, it celebrates not only the FBI success story, but it emphasizes the need for citizen cooperation in the fight against crime. Mm-hmm. The 10 that's most, where we come in. That's what we're doing. Here, that's what Kevin. we're doing. That's what we're doing right now, right here. 
the 10 most wanted fugitives mm-hmm. program tracks the evolution of crime of the crime problem in America. While the list began with bank robbers and murder suspects fleeing state jurisdiction, it has recently evolved into a search for major organized crime figures, serial killers, domestic and international terrorists, cyber criminals, and white collar criminals. And it seems like a lot in the last five to 10 years have actually been terrorists. Yeah, during the last 17 years, the list has illustrated the international scope of crime as well as the importance of strong global partnerships and the search for terrorists, sexual predators, human traffickers, and other violent criminals who pose a significant danger to us all. Right, so the FBI program is evolving. Correct. So gone are the days when the top 10 posters could be found in post offices. Since 1996, the top 10 posters have appeared on the FBI's internet site. That is www.fbi.gov. You know, this is obviously to reach across borders. Uh, Sometimes these people, these criminals will flee to other countries and we need worldwide help to apprehend these guys. Well, it seems like the FBI is also getting hip with social media. Yeah, they've used things like Facebook, uh, Twitter, I believe there's there's even an FBI app where you can keep track of the top 10 list and, and who's on it and who we should be looking for. In the first 60 years mm-hmm. of this FBI list, there were 494 fugitives that appeared on the top 10 list. And during that 60 years, 463 of them had been located. Now, I do want to be clear about this because not all of the fugitives have been arrested out of that 463. Some of these people surrendered, uh, other, others have been found deceased mm-hmm. or they may have been found innocent, you know, at some point where they thought that this person was guilty of a crime and they were seeking him or her. Then later evidence comes out the point that they're not actually the person, the guilty party. Can you imagine being on that list? Like being just that guy that's being the guy that's like, ah, you know, uh, we got the captain from true crime garage on the top 10 list. I'd be, I'd be. I'd be shit in my pants, my friend. All right. So what is the criteria to be on the list? I guess there's two primary criteria used to determine who should be placed on this list. Mm-hmm. First, the fugitive must be particularly dangerous, uh, a menace to society and, or have a lengthy record of committing serious crimes. Secondly, as you pointed out, the FBI must believe that nationwide publicity will assist in apprehending the fugitive. Right. So here's how they come up with this list, Captain. They, they have many FBI offices that are involved in selecting the fugitives who will make it on the list. The Criminal Investigative Division, the CID, at FBI headquarters, they contact all of their other field offices in an effort to solicit the most dangerous fugitives for consideration. So they basically all kind of nominate somebody, and then they review the nominees and decide who is going to be on the list. Well, and off the record earlier, weren't you saying that there's no like one through 10? I believe so. Like I, I always thought of this list when you hear top 10 lists, you hear like, oh, this is the most wanted guy, public enemy number one. Mm -hmm. Right. And the list doesn't appear to me to be a number one, two or three. Uh, anytime I click on there or go to their website, the, the order seems to change, uh, who's on there. So I think you're really just on the top 10 list. You're not really they're not ranking these guys. So right. Cause forever we heard, you know, Os- Osama bin Laden mm-hmm. was the number one most wanted you know, man uh, by our government, by and, our FBI. And that may be the case or may have been the case at the time. I don't know if they've changed the way that they format the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but unless a top tenor is captured, found dead or surrenders uh, that's the only way. Those are the only conditions of getting removed from the list. Cause one of the cases that we're going to dive into what I, when we're looking at the list, he was in the number one spot. Mm-hmm. And when you look into his crime, I mean, you know, he's a hideous person, but you know, it's almost like, really, that's all, that's all you have to do to get to the number one spot. Yeah. Well, I would encourage everybody to go to FBI.gov and dive more into this. You can look into the criteria and look about the history of the list and people that have been apprehended throughout the years. Uh, one thing that w- I found particularly interesting when I was reading about this was where they located some of these fugitives. Um, this is this is right off of their website. It says, while many of the top teners apparently stay close to the crime, you mm-hmm. know, one in one in six fugitives never left the city 
where they committed their crime. But two-thirds were eventually apprehended far from the location of their crime. In fact, more than 40% of the top 10 fugitives have been apprehended outside of the United States. Right, but not anybody. There was no individual from the list that was found in parts unknown. No, that's correct. Just to let you that's know. That's exactly right. Well, one of the famous, let's talk about one of the famous cases from the top 10 list. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a man named William Raymond Nesbitt. On December oh, this 22nd. this is not my favorite one. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we'll start with this one, okay. On December 22nd, 1936, William Raymond Nesbitt, together with three other men, including a man named Harold Baker Mm -hmm. and his girlfriend, they burglarized a wholesale jewelry company at Sioux City, Iowa. Well, the company reported more than $37,000 worth of jewels that had been stolen. Later that month, all of the participants drove to Minnehaha County in South Dakota. So if anybody's in South Dakota and I completely butchered that county, send us an email. If that's the actual name of the county, I'm moving there. <laughs> five, this is five miles east of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Mm-hmm. They did this in order to obtain some dynamite to make nitroglycerin. Okay. Well, at once they arrive and then they get out of the car, three of the men became involved in a fight. The girlfriend, this is Harold Baker's girlfriend, she got out of the automobile and attempted to stop the fight. As she did so, William Raymond Nesbitt struck her in the head with a hammer several times, and one of the other men then shot her. She was dragged into a powder house. Now, Baker, Harold Baker, he was knocked unconscious during this fight, and he was drugged into that powder house as well. Well, one of the men in the group, he lit a fuse to some powder and fled the scene. Baker's girlfriend, although she had been severely beaten and shot, uh, she was able to crawl away. The fuse exploded. This this blew up three thousand five hundred pounds of dynamite and seventy. I'm sorry, seven thousand pounds of black powder. Mm-hmm. This killed Harold Baker. The explosion was huge. It, it rocked the countryside. It shattered windows, mirrors, and glassware in Sioux Falls, which remember we said was five miles away. Well, while the police were conducting an investigation to determine what had caused the blast, they were advised that a woman had been brought to the hospital and she was suffering from bullet wounds and shock. The invest- uh, And those, you know, hammer to the face hits, mm-hmm. you know, she's suffering from those too. Well, the investigation revealed information concerning the three men, including William Raymond Nesbitt, who had been responsible for the murder of Baker and for shooting uh, Baker's girlfriend. Nesbitt was apprehended in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. This was on February 26, 1937. He was returned to Sioux Falls where he was tried and convicted for murder and he received life imprisonment in South Dakota State Penitentiary. Mm -hmm. Now, nine years later, Nesbitt's life term was commuted to a 20-year sentence. (laughs) That's ridiculous. Yeah, well, listen to this. I blew this guy up with dynamite. You're going to give me 20 years? Yeah, and Nesbitt during this term had become a trustee and eventually was allowed to leave the prison to perform housework, landscaping, and duties as a chauffeur. Wow, that's ridiculous. So you got this this, uh, jewelry thief turned murderer who's now driving people around town. On September 4th, 1946, uh, when the night check was made at the penitentiary, Nesbitt was missing. On December 26, 1946, a federal complaint was filed before the United States Commissioner at Rapid City, South Dakota, mm-hmm. charging William, Res- William Raymond Nesbitt with unlawful flight to avoid confinement, and a warrant was issued for his arrest. Right, and then once they issue this warrant, the FBI is going to get involved at this point. Yeah, they're going to be looking for Nesbitt. In March of 1950, a mm-hmm. news article which carried a picture of Nesbitt together with His description and fugitive status was published in a St. Paul, Minnesota newspaper, as well as other newspapers around the country. On Friday afternoon, March 17th, a 14-year-old boy arrived home from school and he noticed a newspaper on the kitchen floor. As he looked at the paper, he noted that the photograph of Nesbitt and the accompanying article advising Nesbitt was wanted by the FBI. So, This boy Mm -hmm. and his 13-year-old friend, they spent a lot of time playing along the Mississippi River Bank in St. Paul, Minnesota, with other boys from the neighborhood. Well, over the past few months, they had become acquainted with a guy that they called Ray. 
who lived in a cave on the riverbank. <laughs> yeah. They would visit yeah. they would visit this Ray guy about once a week. I wonder how many times they told their parents about Ray. Uh, we hang out with Ray. Oh, that's nice, dear. Where does Ray live? Oh, he lives in a cave. Yeah, they parents think that Ray is some created some uh creation of their imagination. Right. Uh well, for during this four month time period, they would visit this Ray guy, you know, when he, anytime they were down by the river. They mm-hmm. said about once a week they would see Ray. And he would allow them access to his cave, uh, occasionally telling them <laughs> stories about his travels, about his life. And finally, in early March of 1950, Ray then, he didn't want to see any of the boys anymore. He told them that they needed to stay away from the cave because it was a dangerous area. They were likely to get hurt. Well, he, yeah, you know, Ray became like a motivational speaker. You know, he kept on saying, you, you guys don't want to end up like me. You don't want to be living in a cave down by the river. Well, and you have to wonder if Ray came up with this at about the same time that the newspaper article came out with his face and picture on it. Mm-hmm. Well, the the 14-year-old boy, he cut out the article uh, from the newspaper, believing that the man in the photograph was Ray. Ray from uh, the cave. Yep. And the boy took the article to his friends and showed them the article, and they agreed that it looked like this Ray character. Well, the next day, the boys went down to the cave to make sure that Ray was indeed the man in the photograph. They then, after seeing him, confirmed their belief. They then phoned the police and told them of their suspicion. So on that Saturday morning, this is just March 18th, Mm -hmm. 1950, just two days after William Raymond Nesbitt was placed on the top 10 list, well, he was apprehended by St. Paul police due to the courage and bravery of these two young boys that had seen his picture. Mm-hmm. That would make one heck of a like a dramatization if they took that and just made that little part a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a 13 and 14 year old, you know, seeing this, you know, this is Ray from the cave, but this guy is on the FBI's uh, most wanted list. Ray we, from the cave. And we got to we got to go down there and com- confront him. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's oh man. Can you imagine the terror that was in their their little bodies? You know what? I wonder about that, though, Captain. I wonder if, you know, of course they weren't too young to have fear, but right. you almost wonder if they fully understood the, and comprehended the, the gravity the, right, of the, the subject. Scope. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that they could be placing themselves in immediate danger. Well, this is kind of showing the history of how it works and, and, and how they implement it. Yeah, and how quickly somebody can be apprehended once they're placed on the list. Yeah, you said it was a couple days? Yeah, it was just two days after they showed the uh, newspaper article. What another really interesting case is Robert Van Wees. Uh, he was wanted for murder for, I believe, 30 years or so mm-hmm. uh, before he actually ended up on the list. Well, and I'm going to take some of this story from a, uh, this is adapted from a news story from KVU, which is an ABC affiliate Um, back in 2015. Now, this story takes place in Austin, Texas. Now, more for more than three decades after a brutal murder in South Austin, police say that they knew who had did it, but the suspect was still not in custody. In September of 1983, employees at the South Austin office building got to work and discovered 22-year-old Lori Stout in the men's restroom. Mm -hmm. She had been sexually assaulted strangled and suffocated. Now, Lori Stout, who is she? She owned a cleaning business along with her husband, and she had been working that night in the building, and she died that night. Uh, She was murdered. This happened at an office building on South 1st Street near the U.S. Highway 290. Now, back in the 1980s, the University of Texas, they had offices there. So this is where UT students would be signing up for classes And so this building was open late that night. So there are many people coming in and out of the building that evening. Right. So this is the, this is the university of Texas. This is the Longhorns, right? Yeah. Big giant university. We we, we talk about Texas a lot. Uh, It's a big state. Lots going on. So one of the students that was in and out of the building that night was 18 year old Robert Van Wees. Everyone who was in the building that night after they discovered the murder. I think that his friends called him Young Wheezy. Young Wheezy. Young Wheezy. Young Van Wheezy. <laughs> Old Young Wheezy. Well, after the, the victim was discovered, 
everybody that was in the building that night, they were questioned. Mm -hmm. And this included 18 year old Van Weese. Uh, he was there late registering for a class uh, that he was going to attend at the university. At was the he time. taking computer? He, probably. That's what most people sign up for. Mm -hmm. um, he was given fingerprinting and some kind of DNA test. Right, but he wasn't apprehended at this time, right? Right. Because they have to process the fingerprints and the DNA. Yeah, and they really had nothing to hold him on, and it wasn't until later that they were able to match his fingerprints with fingerprints found at the crime scene. And the, do we know if they were able to match the DNA or not? Well, let's get into that. Let's uh, introduce Angel Polanski. She was with the Austin Police Department. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a few things that she's she's got a lot of opinions about this case. She's worked this case for a long time, saying that, you know, this was a case that they talked about daily at their department. It was one that they believed was going to be solved. And then later, once they had the evidence, they really felt that they knew who had committed this crime it was all about apprehending this person. So what happens here, Captain, is not only are those fingerprints found at the crime scene, mm -hmm. but according to Polanski, the fingerprints are in locations that are very damning to him. Uh, what ended up happening, too, this is a bit strange, but she added that a lab technician had misread the DNA originally, and this ruled out Van Weese. It wasn't until 1992 that another investigator realized that there was a mistake. So they went back and they were able to get familial DNA, which ended up connecting Van Weese to this case. So this solidifies right, their theory that they had the right guy. Right, but when you hear stories like that, I mean, doesn't it just make you question the credibility of the system? Mm, yeah, it, it does. You know I mean? But but we're humans. You know, we're all flawed. Uh, people make mistakes. Speak for yourself. <laughs> uh, the police believe that that Van Weese left the country before they could apprehend him. Now, the next challenging thing would be, of course, locating him. And then they believe that he had he had gone to Mexico. Well, let me guess. He was living in a cave down by the river. Mm, I don't think that was the case. No. But not only was the problem finding him. But also a big problem would be if he was to be located in Mexico, would law enforcement there extradite him back to the United States? Mm, yeah, they have to be cooperative with us. A U.S. Marshals supervisory detective says that this could be a long, cumbersome process. It could take months. It could take even years. You know, Van Weese init initially faced the death penalty, but investigators were going to have to lessen the charge if they did locate him in Mexico and wanted to get him back because... Mexico does not agree with our death penalty as a punishment, and mm -hmm. they're very upfront about not agreeing to even consider extradition of any Mexican national that has a capital murder as the charge or a death penalty as the possible uh, possibility of punishment. Yeah, that's very interesting. Well, what they ended up doing, Captain, is just that, right? So they, uh, regarding Van Weese, they lessened the charge. And his punishment was going to carry a life sentence. Right. Uh, once that changed, the FBI and the U.S. Marshals were working very hard to find him. Well, after 32 years, Jeez. it wasn't going to be easy. And then let me throw this at you, too. Investigators only had one picture of Van Weiss. This mm. was him at the age of 18. You know, so, of course, he's going to look a lot different after 32 years and yeah, or he could be like Ralph Macchio and he looks exactly the same. I think Ralph is sleeping in Tupperware. He's, he's mm -hmm. holding it together very well. The other thing though, all of the lead investigators, like I said, they believe that they knew who did this from the get go from very early on in this crime investigation. Mm -hmm. And their big concern was, you know, they didn't want him to hurt anybody else. You know, in 32 years, you have to sit back and wonder, well, I hope he hasn't raped anybody else or murdered anyone else during that time. That's a, of course a big concern for us all. Well, and I think the other concern was that his family lived in the area and they weren't being cooperative with police or FBI. So then they were wondering, right. If they're like sponsoring him, if they're mm -hmm. supporting him. Yeah. They would offer the police no help with their investigation to find their family member. Well, you know, but in their defense, I mean, you have one DNA comes back and it's red wrong mm -hmm. quote unquote. So how, how can you be for sure that these fingerprints match him? And if they don't, then therefore, you know, he's innocent. I mean, that would be a simple argument, right? Mm -hmm. Why are you running from the law? 
well, the, they say my fingerprints match, but they don't. And they said before my, that my DNA didn't match. And now they're saying it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, I can see both sides of the coin there. But, you know, he fits the criteria very well for being on the list because he would be considered a dangerous fugitive. And then second of all, he's somebody that it, it seems very obvious that they need the public's assistance in apprehending this guy, especially if he did flee the country. Right. But this is all going to change December 13th, 2016. Yeah, because they're going to place Van Wees on the FBI's most wanted list. Uh, he becomes the 511th person added to the list. And after that takes place, well, it doesn't take very long, Captain, because on January 26, 2017, uh, he surrenders to U.S. officials in Laredo, Texas, at the Mexican border. Now, on March 28, 2017, Van Wees pled guilty to murder and was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Ha! Gotcha! Gotcha! So that's where you can see a guy that's wanted for a crime for over 30 years. He's placed on the list and it's what about 45 days later, approximately that he surrenders and ultimately pleads guilty to having committed this crime. All right. So 90% of the time it works all the time. All right. Let's get right back to this right after this quick beer break. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL Learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch. To Mint Mobile. 
All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited-time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need to pack a lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we're back. Cheers, mate. Cheers. So we are going to feature some persons that are wanted by the FBI. These are straight off of their list. So these are live cases, active cases. We encourage everyone to go to fbi.gov slash wanted and do your part. You know, look at the faces, read the stories, because just like Robert Stack used to say, who knows, maybe you could solve a mystery. Yeah, but he'd say it way cooler than that. You're, you're right, he would. So first on our list, let's talk about a guy named Jason Derrick Brown. A uh, little background on him. He was born in 1969. He's an American fugitive wanted for first degree murder, armed robbery in Phoenix, Arizona. This took place November 29, 2004. On December 8, 2007, he was named by the FBI as their 489th fugitive to be placed on the 10 most wanted list. Now, of course, Brown is considered armed and extremely dangerous. Um, like we said, he was born in California back in 1969. Uh, he attended the Laguna Beach High School. Mm-hmm. Brown speaks fluent French, and he has a master's degree in international business. Well, the, he actually should be called like the MTV killer. And I say that because one, Laguna Beach, mm-hmm. right? Wasn't there a show called Laguna Beach? I think so. And then, uh, so there's that part. Uh, typical, you know, it seems like kind of a, a richy rich white guy. But the funny thing is, is for a while he was trying to rock the Polly D uh, from Jersey Shore mm-hmm. haircut. Well, he grew up a bit of a privileged lifestyle, Um, He served a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Paris, France from 1988 to 1990. Uh, So when we say he's fluent in French, he's extremely 
fluent in French. Uh, between 1990 and 2004, Brown resided in several places in Orange County, California. This included Dana Point, as well as a neighborhood of Newport Beach. Brown also owned two businesses. This was based in Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, these are identified uh, by computer records as Toys Unlimited and On the Doorstep Advertising. Both of these companies he operated out of his Utah home. Now, Brown had been employed as as a toy salesman and a golf equipment importer as well. Now, okay, so he's got these businesses, plus he has these jobs that he's doing. This is a guy that later in life and leading up to his crimes, he's trying to support a very luxurious lifestyle. Right, but let's go back for a second. So there's no storefronts. Mm-hmm. These are just online. He's like a distributor. Correct. So this guy, you know, read four hour work week and he took that to the extreme. Mm-hmm. So he's selling toys online and he's also selling golf equipment. Correct. Okay. Correct. Now, what is his expe- his his luxurious lifestyle? Well, this is a guy that has extremely expensive taste. Mm-hmm. Uh, he likes cars, fast cars, motorbikes, boats. Um, he he portrayed himself to be a wealthy man. Um, but he was not a wealthy man. This was a guy that was racking up tens of thousands of dollars in debt. Sounds like the captain. (laughs) Well, Jason Brown, he finds himself big time in debt by the year of 2004. Mm -hmm. Now in November of 2004, uh, Brown took a firearms class. He purchased a 45 caliber Glock pistol. Um, and he purchased this from a place called totally awesome guns. Uh, they, yeah. (laughs) This was, Uh, Hey, I got a great idea. Let's sell guns. What do you want to call it? Totally awesome guns, dude. Well, and this place was in Salt Lake city, but they also had a, uh, a range, a shooting range there as well. Now Mm -hmm. he wanted to take some classes. He wanted to get his, um, conceal and carry license. So he passed a background check and as part of the class, he was fingerprinted and his prints were sent to state and federal authorities. You know, this is part of the agreement when you sign up for these different things. Mm-hmm. Now his, his instructor at the class would later describe Brown as an obnoxious student. Um, he was a guy that had, you know, he had a chip on his shoulder. He was kind of goofing off during the class. Didn't take it too seriously. Um, and he the, said, and this he was, is coming from the guy at uh, totally awesome guns, totally awesome guns. Okay. Uh, he also says that Brown seemed to be extremely inexperienced with firearms. Well, you can just picture this, right? I mm-hmm. mean, some rich white kid, I'm going to learn about guns, and he just, you know, he's just joking around about it, not well, taking it serious. Well, and to paint a bit of a picture, too, for the listeners, he's got kind of this, uh, you know, some of the pictures you'll see of him, he's got a bit of a, a tan California surfer dude kind of look to him. Yeah, but he's also kind of, uh, a couple of people have said he kind of looks like Sean Penn. I guess if you do a, I'm going to do a Google image search real quick. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I yeah, think for some reason they, they put pictures with a uh, Sean Penn next to him to kind of show you he looks similar, but I think he just looks like a douche on Monday, November 29th, 2004. This is the Monday after the Thanksgiving day weekend. Now there's a, there's an armed truck that's going to pull up to a movie theater and this is in Phoenix, Arizona. Okay, so the way that this thing would work is that the truck would pull up and you have a driver and then you have a guard that would get out of the truck. Yeah, I used to have to deal with these guys. Uh, Brinks was a company that I dealt with mm-hmm. when I worked at the bank and they would show up. I think our uh, money drop was every Tuesday, so they'd have to show up Tuesday and, and you could have different if you had like special orders they'd come on different days. But yeah, one guy would stay in the truck. The other guy would come in. But these both individuals are heavily armed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anybody that's familiar with this, these guys, they look like these guards, they they're dressed m- very much like police officers. Uh, and it's usually pretty obvious that they're wearing bulletproof vest. And as the captain said, they're armed. Um, my experience with, with persons in this profession was I always got the, the GI Joe kind of feel from these guys. They were very aware of their surroundings. They were very fit, physically young dudes, um, a lot of them wanted to go into law enforcement at some point in their careers. We actually, had, we actually had one guy that was not physically fit at all. He was like this little. He should have stayed in the truck, right? But he was this like a uh, little Russian guy, and he'd always come in, he'd always be uh, he was so pissed off about everything, right? 
And then like, so you'd have coin and, and so not only would they drop off the money to you, which they would like put nice and neat on their little, uh, dolly mm-hmm. or whatever. So then once you gave them bags and other stuff, they didn't have time to like put it back on their dolly. So this guy, he never wanted to take two trips. So he would just be like waddling out with this money, like just sweating, carrying as much as possible to avoid the second trip. Yeah. But it's, I, I will never forget that guy. Cause he was pissed off every Tuesday when I'd be like, ah, I got tons of coins for you. Mm-hmm. Well, and no it, problem. I do this myself. It's got to be a stressful job. You know, it's a high risk job, as we will see in this particular story as well. Mm-hmm. And I think, obviously, they probably want to spend as little time out of outside of that truck as possible. Well, for this particular pickup, this was going to be a pickup from a movie theater. This is an AMC 24 movie theater in Phoenix, Arizona. They had the same, like, what they would call drop point Um, where the truck would pull up and park in the same area every time. Mm -hmm. The one single guard would get out of the truck. The truck is then locked by the driver from the inside, and then the guard goes in and collects the money. Well, and they do this, like my bank was on a corner, Mm -hmm. and their their pickup spot was always, um, you you know, they, they have to have an exit plan. Right. So they would park, you know, on the curb, but like if anything went down, they had a straightaway to, turn right Mm -hmm. so um so they do this every time and if somebody was parked in that spot they would just loop around until they could be as close to that spot as possible yeah yeah well i was once told to move my vehicle by one of these uh guards by one of the trucks i guess i was blocking their spot or their getaway spot like you had said and then what do you say to him you go not my problem no, I just said, yes, sir. And I moved my car. Uh, I said, not my problem. And then he pulled a gun on me and I was forced to move my car. Well, this is at 10 a.m. on a Monday. And their job here is going to be to pick up money from this movie theater. So they park in their designated spot. Now, it sounds to me like the guard had a considerable amount of distance to walk to get into the movie theater to collect this money. Or waddle. Yeah, well... This is uh, 24-year-old Keith Palomares. He is the guard that's going to get out of the truck. Right. Okay, so around 10 a.m. that morning, as Palomares is making his way back to the truck, and he gets just to, you know at the movie theater where they sell the the tickets at the ticket kiosk, and sometimes it's outside of the movie theater? Mm -hmm. He's walking just past them when he's approached by a man. This is a hooded man, and he's got a gun. He ambushes the guard. Unfortunately, the guard is armed, but does not have time to defend himself. He is shot at six times at close range. And five of the six bullets that were fired struck the guard in the head. Yeah. Because these individuals also wear bulletproof vests. Mm -hmm. And, and so the, the gun used in this attack was, um, well, it was going to be this 45 caliber semi-automatic Glock. Right. Um, that we had discussed earlier that Brown had purchased from the awesome guns and range in Salt Lake City. Um, police won't know this exactly at this time. Unfortunately, the young guard, uh, only 24 years of age, he died at the scene. Um, and the gunman immediately took the bag of money from the guard. Right. And this contained $56,000 in cash. Now, the gunman, he ran into an alley and he was seen leaving the scene on a bicycle. Well, and he he had to know somebody because, you know, your drops are different every week. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there'd be times that we you would have to order money. You know, so Branks would bring us the order of money. Well, sometimes, I mean, I'd be in the back room and I'd have to, you know, count maybe $200,000 worth of cash. Mm-hmm. That's what I ordered. But there'd be other weeks where maybe we only ordered large or or a, a certain number of bills, and it could be as little as $1,500. Right. So the fact that he's going to be walking away with $56,000, anybody listening and going, hey, this sounds like a great idea, the chances of it being that large every time the, there was a drop at the movie theater, I would say is extremely low. So I wonder if he knew some individual that worked there. Well, the other thought here, Captain, is that it would have been after the Thanksgiving Day weekend. Right. Um, so I don't know if that if that created a, a longer time okay, so between a pickups. 
So, sorry to cut you off, but question. So is is this after the individual picks up the money or are they dropping off money? The, they the are truck? picking up money from the okay. movie theater. I was a little confused. But okay, so then he would have some knowledge that we know that that's one of the biggest weekends mm-hmm. all year. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, okay. That makes a little more sense to me. Sorry. Sorry about that. And so, so police immediately are believing that this is a planned crime. You know, that this right. guy didn't just happen to be in the area with a gun and decided, oh, there's an armed guard. I'll go rob him. They, they believe this to be planned. Like you said, it's a big movie weekend. Um, and this guy is leaving the movie theater. He's the attacker knew that the guard would be armed knew that he would be wearing a bulletproof vest right. and immediately fires at the head of the guard. Well, police originally in their investigation, they start hearing stories of a guy that had been hanging around the mall. I'm sorry, around the movie theater for weeks. And this was a guy that was, that drove a silver BMW. Mm-hmm. Now, the only problem here though, is he doesn't match the description by eyewitnesses on the day that the guard is shot. On that day, witnesses described the shooter as somebody being 25 to 30 years old and Hispanic. Well, the guy that had been hanging around the movie theater for weeks in his silver BMW was a white guy, but he did fit the age uh, that the witnesses had stated. A couple days later, police locate the bicycle that the guy had fled on. Well, on this bicycle, they find a bunch of fingerprints. Well, they match these fingerprints to a guy named Jason Derrick Brown. Remember, he was fingerprinted when he purchased that gun and signed up for the firearms class. And and looking at Jason, there's no way you would mistake him as a Hispanic individual. Um, so that, that that's kind of a little strange to me. It is a little strange, but I will throw this out there. When I said he's got that kind of California surfer dude look, yeah, well, um, he has the blonde hair too. You know, the bleach. Well, it's frosted tips. Yeah, and it, but he's he's pretty tan in a lot of these pictures that you see, and he would have been hooded. You know, he's right. wearing a hoodie when he attacked the guard, so they might have only been able to see a small portion of his face. Right, and we have his fingerprints that were on the bike, mm-hmm. the getaway bike, and we have his fingerprints from the shooting range, the totally awesome gun store. Yeah. So now the police are armed with his name. They have a name. It's Jason Derrick Brown. And they make an announcement that they're looking for this guy. JDB. Because of the shooting that took place in front of the movie theater. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a local guy and he hears the name in the news report. And he contacts the police department and he says, I met this guy. I actually met him the day before the guard was shot to death. He was out somewhere and he had parked his truck and there was a guy out there practicing it like shooting. You know, he's, he's firing his gun off doing some practice shooting. Okay. And he had these, um, like paper plates that he was shooting at and using them as, as targets. Well, remember we said he was a very inexperienced shooter, right? Yeah. He accidentally shot this guy's truck. So what had happened was the guy, he approaches him and he's like, look, man, you, you just shot my truck. And so this dude, and he, he says he's very, you know, California surfer looking kind of dude shot my truck and he, he agreed to pay me $1,300 in damages for the bullet hole in the truck. Mm -hmm. And he wrote out some kind of contract uh, re- result, you know, uh, what was the result of what happened and how they decided to work this out. He wrote it out on some of those paper plates that he was using as targets okay. and he signed his name, Jason Brown. Mm-hmm. And so this guy brought these paper plates to the officers and said, look, this, this is the dude. I saw him out practice shooting the day before this crime went down. Sure enough, they matched the bullet that is in this truck to be that of the same bullets that were used to kill the guard. So not only do we so have his, do, so they could do a ballistic test, you know, mm-hmm. comparing uh, the bullet holes of the paper plates and the bullet holes uh, on the victim. Yeah. So now you have fingerprints of this guy on the getaway bicycle, mm-hmm. as well as matching the bullets uh, that, that he signed a paper plate saying that he was using the day before this guy was shot. 
So where are they at now on this investigation? Well, before we, I bring you totally up to speed, you know, as soon as he was named and identified as the suspect in this case, mm-hmm. uh, they, they traced him around and followed him around the United States for quite some time. Uh, they were tracking him to uh, Henderson, Nevada, which he fled from Arizona. Uh, he had also traveled to Las Vegas at one point. Uh, there he swapped out his cars. Remember, they were looking for this silver BMW. It was one of those uh, Series 3. Um, and they were looking for this vehicle. Well, he swapped out this vehicle in Nevada where he, he started driving a black Cadillac. Cadillac Escalade. Baller. Well, after he switched out these vehicles, Captain, he drove back to California. Remember, he's got family there. Right. And he would actually stay with some relatives <sighs> until the police were once again on his trail. Mm-hmm. Now, here's a very disconcerting thing here. Um, his relatives admit that he stayed there, uh, but originally they tell the police that, yeah, he you just missed him by like an hour or two. We don't know where he went, but he left here in his silver BMW. Well, the police get smart, right? They're they're not stupid. They're like, mm, mm-hmm. okay, you're housing this fugitive, and you're going to tell us, you know, you don't know where he went, but this is what he's driving. So the police immediately are like, we're not looking for a guy in a silver BMW. We're we're not putting that out on our be out on the lookout for. We're going to put it out that he could be driving a silver BMW or any other type of vehicle. Right. It was after this that they do learn at some point that they were lied to by the relatives and that he was, in fact, in a black Cadillac Escalade by that point. Well, they should be charged and locked up. And um, I think if they did that, guess who's going to be? Well, he's not going to turn himself in because he only gives a shit about himself, mm-hmm. for one. And, but, you know, but, but they need to put pressure on the family. I think that's the right thing to do. Well, in 2005, the authorities found Brown's Cadillac in the long-term parking lot at a Portland, Oregon airport. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, while he was in Portland, they learned that Brown had been mailing packages of clothing and golf equipment to his brother, David John Brown, who was still in San Diego. Again, okay, we have a case where your family's lying. So you're, you're lying to the police. You're harboring a fugitive, right? Mm-hmm. So charge him with something. Oh, he's mailing stuff to his brother. Charge his brother. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, he killed an innocent person that was doing nothing but his job. A young man, you know, mm-hmm. you know, providing for himself, probably maybe even his family. And, and this ass wipe with frosted tips is running around all over, you know, uh, sending golf supply. So he can go play golf somewhere. That's ridiculous. That's a, that, this family is one. Uh, this is a. This is not a family tree. This is a family pile of shit. Well, I like that you're getting so worked up, Captain. Because, and I tell you why. Because, like you said earlier, people look at the top ten list and they're like, oh, "This guy, he killed one person, and he's on this list. How does he make the list?" And I, th- I think when you really think about this crime. And think about the guy that perpetrated it, this Jason Brown. Mm -hmm. He knew, he knew when he woke up that morning that if he saw the guard, he was going to kill the guy for nothing other than just greed, just straight up greed to make off with as much money as he, who knows how much he thought he was going to get out of this. But regardless of what he thought he was going to get out of it, he took away someone's life, took someone away from their family permanently for $50,000. Well, and I, I would assume, too, that these money trucks fall under the same guidelines as banks do. And so it becomes, you know, if you rob a bank, that's a federal offense. Mm-hmm. And so same at, with armored vehicles. You are exactly right. It is considered a federal offense to rob the armed truck. Um, regarding his family, we mentioned his brother, David Brown. He was indicted for obstruction of justice. Um, and oh, good. they... The Good. indictment also claims that he tampered with evidence because he cleaned out Jason's BMW in early December of that year. Um, mm-hmm. So he was involved in helping him obtain that other vehicle or switch out those two vehicles. Well, right. But we know it's his gun. We know it's his fingerprints. But again, it's obstruction of justice because there's probably more evidence in that car. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what they're angry about. Now, in 2005, the FBI had more than 200 leads in this case. 
the majority of the leads were from outside of Arizona and dozens were coming from outside of the United States, including possible sightings in Canada. Well, come on, Canada, help us out here. Well, the FBI says that they have more leads on Jason Brown than anyone else on the FBI's most wanted list. Right. Uh, but they said that most of these leads have been unhelpful. Um, you had mentioned, we had mentioned Sean Penn earlier, right? Mm-hmm. That he bears a close resemblance or people have stated that he looks somewhat like Sean Penn. I think a lot of that's coming from his wanted poster, that picture of him wearing the red hoodie. That was the picture that was taken of him when he was trying to obtain that uh conceal and carry license. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a relatively recent photo of him right before the crime. Now in a strange twist here, one of Sean Penn's body doubles was once mistakenly arrested by authorities who thought he was Jason Brown. And I'll post some pictures of Jason Derek Brown on our Instagram page at true crime garage. Investigators over the years have been presented with many different theories regarding where he could be hiding out or the location of, of Jason Derrick Brown. One of the theories that seems to come up a lot with him is that maybe he committed suicide and they've just not found his body yet. Right now there's an investigator that's worked this case for many years. And he says in, in, in an interview, he says, you know what? I don't want to get into the psychology of this whole thing. I'm not going to try to get into the criminal's head, but he says, you know, this guy is a narcissist at the highest level. He thinks way too much of himself And he says, you know what? I don't think that this guy would kill himself. He was greedy enough to put his life above anybody else's just to commit a murder out of greed to take $56,000. Well, let's think about this for a second. Maybe, maybe he's right, right? He's a narcissist. This is a greedy act, you know, a a malicious act to, you know, kill somebody for, for what gain Mm -hmm. for some monetary gain. But this is an individual that, you know, his appearance is important to him. You know, his hairline is running away from his face. You know, he, he's driving a BMW. He's all about appearances and he can't keep that appearance up. Mm-hmm. So I could see somebody then coming to the, you know, reality to go, you know, well, my life was a sham. None of these things matter or they shouldn't have mattered to begin with. And, and then often himself. Well, and sometimes being on the run for so long, it creates its own stresses and can do things to a person over time. There was a credible sighting of him in 2008. This was August of 2008. Mm -hmm. Uh, A person that knew him recognized Brown at a traffic light in Salt Lake City. Um, He said that the person that Brown looked over at him and recognized him back. And when this took place, that Brown ran the traffic light. Right. Now, so we have a situation where, Captain, you know, there is a reward for everybody that is on the top 10 list. The minimum reward is $100,000. They've doubled the reward for Jason Derrick Brown. It's $200,000 at this time. Another theory that the authorities have thrown out there is that they believe he could possibly be hiding amongst the Mormon community under an assumed identity. Remember, he has a lot of traces back to that Salt Lake City area. And he was also seen there in 2008. They believe that he might be living with a woman, kind of mooching off of her, Mm -hmm. uh, somebody that may not know his real identity. He seems like the type. They also say that it's possible that he did flee the country, and they would believe that he could be living in France or Thailand, as also noted. I don't know what the the background is regarding Thailand. Yeah, that seems a little more likely to me. I mean, you know, we talked about that he was overseas for a small period. Well, Jason Derrick Brown has gone by many aliases over the years, um, including Jason Brown, Derrick Brown, Greg Johnson, Hairline Johnson. We also have Greg Johnson and John Brown and Jay Brown. So he's used many names over the years. Um, who knows if he's still using one of those names? But remember, you know, if you see anybody on this list, and again, we encourage you to go to FBI.gov and check out these. The, Sorry, Hairline Johnson. Yeah, that's what it We're says. We're just going to glaze over that one. Yeah, uh, <laughs> we are. <laughs> but we encourage everybody to go look at the faces of the people that we mention on today's program and tomorrow's program and familiarize yourself with them uh, and their description. You know, mm-hmm. Jason was listed as five foot ten, blonde hair, medium build, um, 170 to 180 pounds at the time that he has fled. He has green eyes. 
Um, again, speaks fluent French and may be using any of those aliases. But keep in mind, if you see or you think you have any information regarding somebody that's on this list, all these people are extremely dangerous people. These are This is not somebody that you want to approach. You want to notify authorities and let them do their job. Yeah, it's definitely don't. Don't be going uh, karate kid on them. Don't go rough macho on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we got a lot more to get to tomorrow, and it's getting late. So Yeah, we're up against it, and there are several more people that we want to discuss, some open cases that we will discuss on tomorrow's show. Check out the store page, because guess what? We mm-hmm. got those Team Nick shirts in. And I'm not going to let the captain beat me here. Don't let the captain win. All right. Team captain, strong team captain. We need more Team Nick people out there than Team Captain. All right. Till tomorrow. Be good, be kind, and don't litter. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com garage today.